So much of the work I do with nonprofit leaders is help them to navigate change. In strategy work, it's about painting the picture of a future destination and then working to help the organization navigate the path from here to that new there. With coaching, same thing. I look for coaching clients who are good or very good, who want to be great. And we talk about what has to change in order to make that happen. And the same is also true with leadership transition work. But the changes that have come with a terrifying global pandemic in which a possible solution is a vaccine that could be your way, I'm pretty good and I'm doing my level best to provide guidance to my clients and members, but even I feel like I don't know what I don't know. But while many predict doom and gloom in the nonprofit sector during this time, especially around fundraising, I'm feeling this strong sense that a crisis brings an organization together, creates a kind of focus on what matters, and that nonprofit organizations have a good shot of getting to the other side stronger. I may know more than a thing or two about nonprofits as organisms and how they operate or don't, and I may know quite a lot about what makes nonprofit leaders tick, but I'm not a full-on expert in what makes an organization go from good to great. I've not studied it as my life's work. I wanted to answer this question. What would it take for a nonprofit? What choices would they need to make? What kind of leadership would it demand for a nonprofit to come out on the other side greater or stronger? So I didn't just find an expert. I actually found the expert. Today's guest wrote the book on how to navigate a path from good to great. Like literally, he wrote the book. It's called From Good to Great. And when leaders in the social sector clamored for a version of the book that spoke to them, he knew his busy audience well. So he wrote a monograph that was only 38 pages long that I have introduced to thousands of leaders. It has been required reading in my course on nonprofit communications at the University of Pennsylvania and has also made a great holiday gift for my clients. If it is your first time hearing about it, then I have just given you a gift too. And yes, the link is below in the show notes. It's also one of his other terrific books that we're going to talk about today as well. It's called Great by Choice, kind of the book for this time, how organizations thrive in times of uncertainty and chaos. Jim Collins is nearly a household name in the business world. Phrases like getting the right people on the bus are part of the organizational vernacular because of him. He's got plenty to do, doesn't really need the publicity. But when he asked, when we asked, he said, Yes, because he knows that his research, his ideas, and his insights can help you, and they can help you right now. I often imagine that folks listening are driving or on some kind of gym equipment when they tune into my podcast. At my office, we call that having your divided attention. I'm thinking for this discussion, you just might want to be stationary. Greetings, and welcome to my podcast, Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary. In my work, I offer counsel and advice to CEOs and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a keynote speaker, an author of a best-selling book with a very novel name, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, and I'm a columnist for the Chronicle of Philanthropy. I'm also the co-founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, an online membership site where we help small nonprofits thrive. But most of all, I consider myself a compassionate truth teller and a champion for board and staff leaders. In my podcast, I dig deep into the issues faced by nonprofit leaders. You can always count on getting my personal point of view, and you can count on experts who will share their expertise in fields ranging from fundraising to leadership transitions, to team building, to board management, to organizational strategy, to self-care. The list goes on. 
So welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Let's get started. Jim Collins is a student and teacher of what makes great companies tick and a Socratic advisor to leaders in the business and social sectors. He has authored or co-authored six books that have together sold 10 million plus copies worldwide, including Good to Great, Good to Great in the Social Sectors, Built to Last, How the Mighty Fail, Great by Choice, and his most recent work, Turning the Flywheel, published in February of 2019. Driven by a relentless curiosity, Jim began his research and teaching career on the faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he received the Distinguished Teaching Award in 1992. In 1995, he founded a management lab in Boulder, Colorado. In 2017, Forbes selected Jim as one of the 100 greatest living business minds. That's big. Jim is an avid rock climber, more than 40 years of it, and he has completed single-day ascents of El Capitan and Half Dome in Yosemite Valley. Jim, on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you. I know you are very, very disciplined about how you spend your time, and in that context, it is a special privilege to have you with us. Thank you. Welcome. I feel very welcome. It's a, a tremendous uh, privilege to be with you, and I uh, I, I've so enjoyed uh, your show and the service that you render to folks in the nonprofit world. So uh, let's let's go right into the conversation. So Jim said he wanted to have a marvelous conversation, and so we're going to try to do just that, just for you. I also just wanted to say thanks too for um, for your sense of curiosity and for asking such great questions. I um, I'm. Uh, I work with an independent school in Philadelphia and we've been bouncing, the head of school and I have been bouncing around commencement speeches. Imagine you had to make a commencement speech to 12th graders virtually. And we've really been talking about the fact that, you know, nobody really has the answers <laughs> and that the head of school doesn't really have the answers of what's in store for these 12th graders. So, but what she can do is potentially entice them to ask all the right questions. So it's been a really fun thing to think about your curiosity and this commencement speech. Mm. You know, it's, it's interesting. My, the motivating force in my life, hands down, is absolute curiosity. And uh, I, I, I had a great mentor. I've had many great mentors, but one of them uh, who had an influence on me was John Gardner, uh, who was uh, former Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare in the Johnson administration, hmm. and, a, and a truly great wise man. And uh, John had this marvelous view of the world, which is don't set out to be interesting, set out to be interested. And when I heard that, that was one of those 30-second teaching moments that changed my life and guides everything I try to do today. Find the right questions because questions are better than answers. Well, uh, love that. Love that. So what's kind of great about hosting a podcast is that I actually get to be the curious one. So I get you to do. ask the questions, right? <laughs> and um, I wanted to just talk, I want to start by talking a little bit about um, the framework of your your books kind of build on each other in some ways. And uh, certainly Great by Choice builds on From Good to Great. And um, maybe tell our listeners a little bit, I, I um, as a quasi Jim Collins stalker, I know these stories, but um, a little bit about this from good to great and what you sort of what you learned after you wrote that book that led you to seeing the social sector differences. 
Yeah. So it's, 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 it was very interesting because I, in your introduction, you mentioned the idea that after having written Good to Great, which is a, a full book based on a five-year research project, which basically asks a simple question, can a, can a good company become a great company? And if so, how? How can you overcome mediocrity and, and create an inflection to truly great results? And, and that took a, once after the five years of research, it took a year to write. There's an irony, which is that the social sector's monograph, Good to Great in the Social Sectors, is only 38 pages. It took me two years to write. So what happened? Uh, so it finished Good to Great. It went out into the world and uh, was you know, blessed with tremendous good luck of how well it, it reached people. But here's the big thing that happened. I started to get a lot of correspondence from people in the social sectors uh, who are basically reading Good to Great. And I concluded that at least a third of our readers, maybe as much many as uh, a half of our readers, were from non-business. They were from nonprofits, and they were from healthcare, and they were from education, and they were from the military, and they were from government, and they were from all over. And, and they began asking questions about how does this apply to the social sectors. So then I sat down and I said, okay, I'll write a, a piece on that. Right. Initially thought of it as a, as a chapter or an extension. And after a year of writing, I had to rip it up and throw it out completely. Went into the wastebasket after a year of writing. And the reason was because I realized that I had not gone into it. I, I went into it with the idea of like, almost like the business person who studied business and who sort of shares something with the social sectors. And what I learned is that's not helpful. Mm -hmm. What I learned is that what you have to do is to actually recognize that the dynamics, the realities, the constraints of the social sectors are very different than they are in business. And you really have to start not with the question of what business can teach the social sector. In fact, I think the social sector has more to teach the business sector. But you really have to ask the question, how do the principles come to life in a different way? I, you know, I, you know, I have to, I, so b before you continue on, I just want to say that uh, I hope that anyone who is listening who, so I made the shift from the private sector to the public sector. Yes. I spent 14 years and... Um, Creating wild things on MTV. Yeah, exactly. Yes, <laughs> foisting, uh, foisting music videos on Americans. And, but then I went to run a nonprofit. And, um, and, and what you're saying is true. It is a, it, it's, there were things that were very valuable about what I learned in the private sector that were very helpful to me. And then there were things that I learned. And I, I often want to say that I want to write something about what the nonprofit sector has to teach the for-profit sector, because it's always assumed that the, that the reverse is true. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting when you, the, the subtitle for good to great in the social sectors is why business thinking is not the answer. Yep. And that initially upset a lot of my business friends because I thought, well, the, the social sectors needs to be, need to be more, more business-like. And what I learned actually is that the critical question is not the difference between business and social, between business and nonprofit. It's the difference between great and good, between <laughs> excellent and mediocre. Right. That's the critical difference. And that this notion of a true culture of discipline, disciplined people who engage in disciplined thought and who take disciplined action, this is not a business idea. In fact, most businesses are mediocre. Most businesses don't have a culture of discipline. You don't want to export the practices of a mediocre business <laughs> into the nonprofit. What you want to do is embrace the critical question is what are the principles of greatness that apply to any organization and then how do they apply different when you step into the social sectors. And the interesting thing is 
the very, very best social sector organizations, the very best nonprofits are as well run than the vast majority of business corporations. It, amazing and and totally true. So t- t- so take us through the things that help good good organizations become great. So if you think about that notion we talked about a minute ago is disciplined people, disciplined thought, disciplined action, and then you eventually build greatness to last. It's kind of a staging. You know, it really starts first with disciplined people. And we live in a what world, right, where so much of it is, you know, make sure that you have the right vision or the right direction or, or, or the right plan. Those are all what's. But actually, great vision without great people is irrelevant. And so the starting point is people. And it starts with a certain kind of leader. What we talk in Good to Great is the the level five leader, the leaders who have this strange blend of humility and will combined with ambition for a cause bigger than themselves and the incredible rigor to get the right people on the bus and to make sure that you have constant discipline on that. I was very struck by uh, your podcast interview with uh, Daryl Messenger, I believe her name is. uh, Yeah. and, and if you just listen to that podcast, you listen to her talk, she is incredibly rigorous about the right people, the right people internally, the right people on the board, the right people, like this sense of like, just because, especially because our cause is so large, we have to be even more rigorous about the people we have and what we expect of them. So it starts with people. And then you go to discipline thought, uh, where you really talk about you know, the discipline to confront the brutal facts, the faith that you'll prevail over those facts, the, what we call the Stockdale Paradox, and our friend, the hedgehog concept, right, which I know you wanted to spend a little bit of time on, and how that would be different in the social sectors. But the essence of it is doing what you are truly passionate about, yes, what you can be the best in the world at, and what truly drives your economic or resource engine. And in the business sector, the economic engine is a lot easier to understand because in the social sectors, it's about a resource engine. Yep. And finally, disciplined action, where you translate all of that with incredible discipline into building this thing we call flywheel momentum. Paul Rice, another one of your uh, guests, spoke about building momentum in a movement. I'd love to come back to that in the concept of the flywheel. Let's do that. The idea of tremendous discipline uh, 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 and consistency in things like the 20-mile march, uh, and real discipline around your empirical bets, and ultimately the discipline to have productive paranoia so that you have buffers against really big shocks that can hit you and can knock you out of the game. All right, so, 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 talk, to me, yeah, so talk to me for a second. Um, so <clears throat> talk, the hedgehog is, think about it as uh, almost like the Olympic rings, except there's yep. only three of them, and the intersection yep. is the great organization. Yeah. Right. What you are deeply passionate about. Right. This is the mission yeah. flame. And then you have and I think that I actually you use the word discipline about six times in that yep. little mon- in, in your first monologue there. And it is um, it's really hard, mm-hmm. even though you can have a laser focus on your mission for nonprofit leaders. It is so hard to be disciplined because there are so many forces of power around you, whether it's board or big donors uh, or need. And, um, but it is, I mean, when we do strategy work, this is the question we ask. Like, if your organization was erased from society's hard drive tomorrow, what gap would there be and who would fill it? And it exactly. helps you to determine what it is that you are uniquely and distinctively suited to do. But it was the resource engine that was actually confusing, right? Because it's not just about money. 
And uh, you um, had a conversation with, uh, um, uh, I guess, a minister in a congregation that was sort of eye-opening for you about that, that uh, your aha moment about the resource engine and how it, di- how it differed in the social sector. Exactly. And so, so if you think about, it, again, you've got these three circles. And so we know in the nonprofit sector and the social sectors, the top circle passion, that's a big heart circle, right? And you want that. And in fact, in order to deal with the incredible difficulties, you need this incredible passion just to persist through. But then there's this second circle, which is the discipline to focus on what you can distinctively contribute. I love your question about, hey, if we disappeared, like, would it matter? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and who would miss us? And that means the discipline to know this is really critical. Discipline isn't just about what you do. It's first and foremost about what you have the discipline to not do Ugh. and what to stop doing. And the first thing that should always be on your strategic plan is what we're going to not do and what we're going to stop doing so that we can focus our energies on the few things where we can distinctively contribute the best. So, you and know, then, I, so I, I'm, just, I'm sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to, pop in and just say, Please. Uh, I, um, this is another one of the um, sort of the kryptonites of nonprofit leaders. I, I jokingly say that for nonprofit leaders, prioritizing is a four-letter word because, <laughs> because everything feels equally important that nonprofit leaders who are listening say, oh, my, my job is to uh, is to juggle as many balls as possible and to grab the next one that's been thrown at me and keep them all in the air. When in fact, actually, the object of the game is to make intentional choices about which ones to drop. Yes. And, and in fact, actually, one of the things that is, we talked started earlier with questions, I think one of the most important questions, if you're a board member or if you're an executive director, uh, key member of a team at, at, at a nonprofit, is to ask the question, what should be on our stop doing list? Because, and, 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 I, and I really like everybody who's listening to take away, like, I'll leave it to you whether how to resolve the existential dilemma about whether to put start a stop doing list on your to-do list. But uh, you have to have a stop doing list uh, and a not to-do list. And if you could walk away and say, our first question is, what should we stop doing? What should we not do? That's discipline. That's tremendous discipline, especially when you have constrained resources. Because you're in the business of doing good, doesn't mean you can afford the lack of discipline to try to do all good. Now let's move over to the question of uh, the resource engine. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. So what, what I, here's what's is interesting. People tend to think that uh, the, the, the business sector is the place where you know, really good financial people and discipline really happens. But if you think about it, it's actually a pretty simple model in business. In business, as opposed to the social sectors, and this is what I learned from the ministry. It was great. It's basically saying, look, in business, money is both an input and an output, right? Money comes in and then money comes out and you can measure success by money. But how do you measure, you know, conversions? How do you measure faith? How do you, how do you measure? You can't, right? And there's ultimately the people that you serve in the world. And so in, in, in business, you get this reinforcing loop where money's an input, which then allows you to generate more output, which then allows you to generate more money, which then you can put back in to make the thing go round and round. In the mm-hmm. social sectors, money is not both an input and an output. It is only an input. Yes. Yes. And Listen so, to that. But preach. Listen it, to that. I, 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 if I can, if I can tell you how many times I have looked at organizational goals and it, and the, and one of the goals is increase 
fundraising by 15%. And I just say, no, no, no. No, it's not an output. It's not an outcome. It's not a goal. It's only it's a means to that end of impact. Exactly right. And so and so then the question is, you have to stand back and think it's not just an economic engine. It's a resource engine. And how do we make the most of the resource engine is the third circle of, of the hedgehog. And that in the social sectors means three things. It means, of course, cash flow, right? You pay your bills with cash. Uh, but second is the um, is people right how people huge resource maybe even bigger than money is the right people associated with you whether those be board members staff members volunteers and yep. so forth because if you have the right people you're going to generate resources right then then the third is your reputation and if you think about the notion of brand reputation, of reputation where people don't know necessarily how to calibrate, but they have faith and trust in you and the impact that you make, that enables them to more easily support because it's like, I can't measure it, but I trust them. And that's your reputation. And when you talk about this resource engine, isn't there also a component of it that's about, and maybe this is about the people, but and some combination of people and reputation, but this sort of notion of, like emotional resource and the sort of the hearts and minds of people that are so critical to your ability to have an impact. Yeah. And so maybe let me just pick up with one of my, my favorite uh, social sector leaders. In fact, uh, Inc. Magazine, an editor from Inc. Magazine asked me uh, about a decade ago who I would choose as the entrepreneur of the decade. Okay. And I immediately went, uh, not to a business person. Uh, I went to Wendy Kopp. Uh-huh. And I said, it's Wendy Kopp, founder of Teach for America, hands down, in my view. Now, here's what's, so Wendy Kopp embodies everything that we're talking about, right? There's this incredible, she's a level five leader, tremendous humility, tremendous will, tremendous ambition for the cause. She understood that the whole thing in the end is get really marvelous people. If you get marvelous people engaged in the gigantic cause of education, the long game is you win, right? Incredible ability to confront the brutal facts of what really is on the ground for the kids who don't come from the best upbringings. Clear hedgehog about this is what we can contribute. We can't fix a whole bunch of stuff that aren't us. And if you look at what Wendy Kopp did, now here's the interesting thing. What she was able to do is to basically convince a lot of young people who have other things to do with their lives. She can't mm-hmm. pay them more. She's asking them to go into, uh, uh, to essentially be deployed, right? Almost like joining military service, to be deployed in some of our most difficult environments from, from Harlem to Bronx, Mississippi Delta, New Orleans after Katrina, wherever, where those kids could do other things with their lives. And so what does she do? She gets them wrapped up in this idea of at least giving two years and maybe some ask much larger than that for the rest of their life to be engaged in this cause and to personally have skin in the game. When you're in that second grade classroom mm-hmm. in the Mississippi Delta, it's not like, well, I sort of support education. Like you're all in. And here's the marvelous thing. Yeah, I know you and I uh, have a slightly different view on this, but this question of do you need a charismatic leader? No, 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 no. (laughs) Wendy Cobb is not the classic charismatic leader. She's reserved. She's quiet, right? Here's the key. If you have a charismatic cause, 
you do not need a charismatic leader. Okay, I'll buy that. Because it is the cause that is the charisma. It is the cause that is charismatic. It is the cause that is inspired. It is the cause that draws people in. And if you're relying only on a leader and leader magnetism, what happens when that leader goes away? But if the cause is the charisma, if the cause is what's inspired, well, then it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger because the cause never ends. So um, do we put a pin in the buzzsaw of a controversy about Teach for America? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I'm not sure exactly how to respond to that. I'm, I'm thinking about it from the standpoint of, sort of the startup entrepreneur sure. of starting an entire movement. And I think the thing that is what, what Wendy really shows is that, you know, here she started as a single person coming out of college, not knowing what to do with her life. She wrote a senior thesis on it. She put a stake in the ground. And because what she was trying to do, and she was so totally, deeply, authentically committed to this idea of all kids. Yes that that becomes infectious. And the resource, yes, there's an economic engine, but there's a resource engine that is composed of people, that's composed of people wanting to be part of it. And that's, I think, ultimately where I kind of come back to the idea of the cause brings in people, people are the ultimate resource. So I love all of that. And I and what's actually kind of hilarious about this conversation is that not only is your monograph required reading in my class, so too... <laughs> <laughs> is one day all children by Wendy yep. Kopf. And why I I want them to to be able to see the hedgehog and yep. level five leadership. And then I use it for the uh for the lessons that I we talk about around crisis management because mm-hmm. she does end up hitting a serious buzzsaw about you know white privilege white ivy league kids of privilege going into schools where they do not have the lived experience of the kids they're teaching and all of that so i that's so i think it's perfect for the um for the example you were uh you wanted to use it for so but yeah she actually covers a lot of bases in my class. Talk a little bit of, if you will, about the flywheel, and then let's talk about uncertainty and chaos. Exactly. So uh, a number of my favorite topics. Uh, so let's first of all talk about the, <laughs> uh, the, the flywheel. So, um, so you know, let me, let me first of all uh, share something that was so interesting to me in the research. And we're, we're doing the research one, uh, the research on good to great. And uh, what happened is a member of my research team came in one day, threw his binders on the table and said, do we have to keep asking that stupid question? And mm-hmm. I said, uh, probably, which stupid question are you referring to? <laughs> which stupid and, question? <laughs> exactly. And so what we had was when we were interviewing the executives who had been part of the good to great transitions, because we were able to track them all down. All of our research was you know, first and foremost, historical, but I also wanted to get the perspectives of the people who were there. And one of the questions was, how did you get commitment and alignment uh, behind the changes you were trying to make that would help the company go from good to great? Great. And I said, well, that's a really important question. And my researcher said, well, you may think it's an important question, but the executives who made this happen, they don't understand the question. They think it's a stupid question. And I said, well, boy, that's really interesting. Tell me about that. And so what we found is that uh, that the way the change happened it was 
actually, first of all, two things. First, it was very empirical. You, you prove something and what people get behind is that it works. So in the transition, there was a remarkable transition of Kroger, the grocery store, way back when it was just trying to make a transition to what would become superstores. And, uh, and the comparison was A&P. And the question was, why did Kroger go good to great and A&P didn't? Okay. And part of it is that Kroger was thinking we need to move into larger, bigger superstores, right, back from those old grocery stores. Yep. And so how did they do that? And, and, the, and the chief executive who was there, he said, well, we built one. What do you mean you built one? We built one and it worked. And then I could point to it and say, this worked. And so then what happened is we built two more in other cities to prove it wasn't geography and that worked. And then as that began to build momentum, more and more people came behind it because they could see this works in practice. And that's when we began to get the momentum. Then that goes second part, which is that you begin to build momentum by doing something that works. And it's like pushing a giant heavy flywheel. There's no miracle moment, no instantaneous breakthrough, no big aha, no giant program, no momentary fundraising breakthrough, none of this. It's like pushing a giant heavy flywheel. You start pushing in an intelligent direction, consistent with that hedgehog concept, and you get one giant slow creaky turn. And then you keep building and you get two and four and eight and 16 and 32 and eventually a hundred and a thousand and then a million, and that thing's just got all this reinforcing momentum. Now, here's what's really interesting to me when I was listening to your to your show. Paul Rice. Yep. Well, look at the conversation you have with Paul Rice. And for those of you who haven't heard that show, please go back, uh, listen to it. Um, what, what's remarkable about that is he talks about how early on he just said, you know, I went out and I worked with some other farmers and I showed that it worked. Right. Yeah, and once I showed totally that right. it worked, then people came behind. How do we build a movement? It wasn't selling people. It was showing people. You bet. And it was showing why and how it worked. And that just sucked everybody in. And then we could go out to companies and show them how that's working. And some of them would get in and then that would reinforce. And then the flywheel would click around again. And it's a cumulative building of momentum based upon an empirical foundation. And before you, and voila, right. And voila, you have a fair trade movement, right? Exactly right. A, a movement is a flywheel. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, I have a friend who runs a uh, civil rights activist. He runs a tr- incredible organization called Color of Change. His name is Rashad Robinson. He's been a guest on my show. And he he talks about, and it's a version of this, he talks about turning moments into movements. Yep. And and that's what Paul Rice did when he went to Kenya, um, yeah. right, after college, yeah. is that he saw something, th- th- that moment had something more to it. Yeah, and exactly. Sh- it, yeah. It, wasn't just, it wasn't just episodes. Correct. It was not a series of, it was not a series of moments. Exactly. And, and the key to a flywheel is that there's a logic of momentum that if we do A, it will drive B and B will drive C. Momentum. Let's just leave it there because we've created some. In this first part, what we've done is offered you a picture of the brilliant frameworks that Jim Collins has created in his seminal business book, From Good to Great. But wait, there's more. In part two, We'll continue our conversation, take those fundamental foundation frameworks and build on them. As Jim tells us, 
how organizations can actually thrive in times of uncertainty, disruption, and chaos. Three things we know more than just a little bit about in these days. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you found the conversation to be valuable. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe to it. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave us a review. Turns out that reviews really matter. They help people discover the podcast. And if there's anything in this episode or any episode that really struck you as an aha moment, we'd love to know. Shoot us an email at podcast at joangary.com. And if you'd like to learn more about nonprofit leadership, head on over to my website at joangary.com. That's J-O-A-N-G-A-R-R-Y.com. It's full of advice and resources that you can put into action right away. And make sure to enter your email address so I can send you a surprise I think you'll find helpful. And if I haven't said it lately, thank you. Thank you so much for the important work you do every day to make this world a better place. I'll see you next time.